This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley, bringing you politics without the boring bits. You can listen live from 10 o'clock weekdays on Times Radio. Just download the Times Radio app, retune your DAB radio, or ask your smart speaker to play Times Radio. Coming up on today's podcast, Rishi Sunak's nightmare before Christmas. I just wanted to start by saying how deeply sorry I am to all of those who lost loved ones family members through the pandemic. He's been up at the COVID inquiry facing tough questions about his time as Chancellor. Then tomorrow he's going to face tough questions about his time as Prime Minister and his plan to try and get his Rwanda flights off the ground. Just how bad is it? What's it like inside number 10 when things go wrong? That's coming up in our big thing. But first it's time for the columnists. The columnists on Times Radio. Yeah, a big, big day for Rishi Sunak, live at the COVID inquiry. We've got Libby Purvis and Tom McTague to give us their take on it in a moment. Callum McDonald's first uh, here. Uh, what should we expect from Rishi Sunak's big day at the COVID inquiry? Lots of eat out to help out, lots of furlough, and I think the underpinning message, I've just been rereading Rishi Sunak in The Spectator from August last year, which was in the middle of the Conservative leadership contest, or in fact that's untrue, it was towards the end of the leadership contest. Um, And I've kind of pulled out a couple of themes here. One, which I think we might hear today. One, that lockdown's knock-on effects were never properly explored. I think that's going to be the former Chancellor's take. Uh, That lockdown was not a mistake, but we needed more exploration of what the kind of effects were going to be. I think that's going to be a a sort of underpinning thing. And then I think also just some interesting sort of nuances that may emerge today as well, that there was no socio-economic equivalent to SAGE, so the Scientific Advisory Group for Emergencies, the scientists basically saying, here's what the data's showing us, here's what we should do about it. Uh, Well, yes, and here's some options as to what we might be able to do about it is more accurate. I think there might be a sort of suggestion that actually things like the the economic impact of things like lockdown did not get the same sort of weighting when it came to sort of committees and decision-making process and all of that. Um, there's also, I mean, there's there's going to be, I think, a bit of interrogation around why all of his WhatsApps are missing. Um, he's changed phone number a number of times, is what he said. But I, 
there's a suggestion in several of the papers say that he's going to get a bit of a hard time for that, actually. Um, I mean, WhatsApp messages exist on at least two people's phones is the other part of that, I suppose. But I suppose it depends whether or not they've drawn... You know, the, the thing about the Boris Johnson's missing messages is that everyone else around him has been called to this inquiry, whereas presumably yeah. the conversations that Rishi Sunak was having with his team haven't been... Sucked in in the same way. And on Eat Out to Help Out, yeah. it was interesting. We've had both Chris Whitty and Patrick Valance, the two top scientists, saying they didn't think it was a good idea or they didn't know about it. Interestingly, Boris Johnson, let's be honest, not Rishi Sunak's best friend, yeah. uh, when he gave evidence last week, defended it and said they didn't. there was no way they didn't know it was happening. Yeah. And, and you sort of wonder, actually, from Rishi Sunak's perspective, like you said, the scientists were thinking about the science, the Chancellor was thinking about the economy, the scientists had said we could open up. So why wouldn't he put effort into kickstarting the economy again? Yeah, I mean, this is it. And it was largely welcomed, um, both at the time and sort of subsequently. Kate Nichols, the chief executive of UK Hospitality, said that it was a significant boost for the sector when it needed it the most. So, I mean, this is classic COVID inquiry technicalities as to was there a right decision? Was it sort of making the best of a bad situation? Was it simply sort of trying to weigh things up and choosing a route? Were there mistakes made? What should we learn is the overarching theme. So Eastside to Help Out, which ran during August 2020, I mean, I feel I should declare an interest. I went out for some burgers, some discounted burgers. Well, if we're all doing that, I mean, I, should, I, mean? if I have to declare all of my interests <laughs> of making use of Eat Out to Help Out, we'll be here for a long time. Exactly. And part of the issue with the analysis of Eat Out to Help Out is there are varying um, analyses that come to different conclusions. And so it's really difficult to untangle actually what the the sort of real-life impact of it was and whether it was inevitable that we were heading for uh, another wave sort of emerging out of summertime. Bear in mind also, there was a, there's an interesting part of all of this, that there were other measures that were loosened around the same time. So from the 4th of July that year... Um, uh, people were allowed to meet in groups of up to 30, although it was recommended to avoid groups of more than six. Schools were starting to reopen as well. The Alpha variant was floating around. So, I mean, there's all of that sort of stuff going on too. And then we do international comparisons because other places didn't have Eat Out to Help Out schemes like us, but still saw surges in cases. Mm. And places like Spain and France did allow holidaymakers to travel. They had a new spike in cases. So there's a lot of variables to try and feed into this. In fact, uh, and listener Anne-Marie's just been in touch saying, what about all the money wasted on PPE? They didn't work properly. The loans went out to companies will never pay them back. I mean, that's an interesting yeah. area there. Whether or not that's within the remit of the COVID inquiries, perhaps another thing. Let's bring in uh, uh, our columnist, actually, Tom McTague. Um, Tom, if you were Hugo Keith, what question would you want to ask Rishi Sunat today? Oh, my God, it's difficult, isn't it? I mean, I guess it's digging down into the value for money. That's the thing that seems to have really, I don't know, caught people's attention, the public attention, this sense of kind of corruption, um, this sense that money was handed out for kit that wasn't there when we needed it or wasn't, um, or, you know, we had to go through sort of dodgy means to get it. So I mean, if, you, if you're thinking about the kind of um, inquiries remit to prepare for future um, pandemics, yeah. I mean, that is something that I think I'm concerned about this sense of kind of yeah. national uh, resilience. You okay, know, Tom, we we're going to have to jump in there because I think we can uh, go live to the COVID inquiry now. Rishi Sunak taking the oath. Uh, Baroness Hallett in the chair, Hugo Keith Casey asking the questions. Could you commence your evidence, please, Prime Minister, by giving us your full name? Rishi Sunak. Mr Sunak, you have provided a witness statement for the purposes of this module. 
263374, which has been signed in the usual way with the Declaration of Truth. We're very grateful to you for the provision of that statement. Also, the further written material from members of your team, erstwhile team in then Her Majesty's Treasury, the statements of Mr. York Smith and Miss Joseph, all of which will, of course, be considered by the inquiry in due course. Thank you very much for providing the statement and for attending today. We understand that you wanted to say a few words by way of preface to the evidence that you'll be giving. Thank you, Mr. Keith. Yes, uh, thank you for having me here today. I just wanted to start by saying how deeply sorry I am to all of those who lost loved ones, family members through the pandemic, and also all those who suffered uh, in the various different ways throughout the pandemic and as a result of the actions were taken. I've thought a lot about this over the past couple of years. It's important that we learn the lessons so that we can be better prepared in the future. And it's in that spirit and with enormous respect for all of those who are affected that I'm here today. And I look forward to giving evidence in a spirit of constructive candor to help the inquiry with its deliberations. As is very well known, Mr. Sunak, you were elected Member of Parliament for Richmond in Yorkshire in May 2015. You then became in January 2018 a junior minister at what was then the Ministry of Housing, Communities and Local Government. You then became Chief Secretary to the Treasury in July of 2019. And most relevantly for our purposes, in February 2020, did you become Chancellor of the Exchequer after Sajid Javid MP? You remained uh, Chancellor Exchequer until July of 22, so after the conclusion of the coronavirus uh, pandemic crisis, and of course you became Prime Minister on the 25th of October 2022, following the resignation of Liz Truss as leader of the Conservative Party. That is all correct, is it not? Yes, it is. Um, Mr. Sunak, I'd like to start, please, just with some of the forensic building blocks uh, underpinning your evidence today and the issue of the provision of material to the inquiry. In your statement, you set out how you rarely use text to communicate with colleagues. Um, your phone, you said, doesn't retain, and nor do you have access to text messages at all relating to the period of the, the crisis. And in addition, you said, although on occasion you use WhatsApp to communicate around meetings and logistics and so on, you generally were only party to WhatsApp groups that were set up to deal with individual circumstances, such as arrangements for calls, meetings, and so on and so forth. Is that broadly correct? Yes, that is all broadly correct. You don't now have access to any of the WhatsApps that you did send during the time of the crisis, do you? No, I don't. I've changed my phone multiple times over the past few years, and as that has happened, the messages have not come across. As you said, I'm not a prolific user of WhatsApp in the first instance, primarily communication with my private office, and obviously anything that was of significance through those conversations or exchanges will have been recorded officially by my civil servants, as one would expect. Evidence has been given to the inquiry to the effect that Mr Johnson announced the institution of this inquiry in May 2021. 
and around that time, officials discussed the need for ministers and others to retain WhatsApps. It was a matter of um, debate, in fact, in WhatsApp communications between officials themselves. Um, around that time, April and May 2021, did nobody say to you, uh, Chancellor, it's important that you do retain your WhatsApps or we need to put into place measures for them to be backed up in case they, are, they become relevant to an inquiry? No, I, I don't recall either those conversations that you referred to between officials, but you might have been referring to officials in number 10 rather yes. than at the Treasury. And I, yes, and I don't recall anyone in my office uh, making that uh, recommendation or uh, observation to me at the time. Which is soon out there, uh, facing questions about the whereabouts of his WhatsApp uh, messages. Uh, obviously, WhatsApp has been a key theme of the uh, COVID inquiry, uh, whether you like it or not. Uh, listening into that was Tom McTagg from Unheard, Libby Purvis, Times columnist. Uh, Libby, how big a moment do you think this is for Rishi Sunak, whether it's on the detail of his individual decisions or just reminding people that he was Boris Johnson's Chancellor, which is quite hard if you're trying to be the change candidate? Well, I think it's uh, I think it's an important period for him. But I think I want to sort of speak up for him regarding something that's been people gone on and on about his eat out to help out. It was 12 days in August when everybody was hurling themselves onto the beaches and parks anyway with the new freedom. And all I can see there is a chancellor who was put in charge of the economy, desperately worried about that economy, doing a small thing that he thought might help and encourage people to maybe get out again. He's a man who opposed lockdowns because he knew the disastrous after effects were going to come, which we are all seeing now, which include widening the gap between classes, you know, workers from home versus workers out in the world. And I don't think he should have to apologise for much at all. And I think in this inquiry, the way it runs, he's probably going to be expected and made to seem to apologise all the time. And I find this a pity because I think of all the people involved in it, he was actually one of the most sensible. It's really striking, uh, Tom, that if you look at the polling in the, in, uh, in the Times today, uh, more than half of people now think that Rishi Sunak did a bad job uh, during the pandemic, despite the fact that his poll ratings went through the roof when he was uh, getting, the, uh, uh, getting the checkbook out and spending money on Eat Out to help out, but particularly the furlough scheme as well. Um, and I suppose it, it, I mean, that's just a really reminder that the, the voters are pretty fickle, much like how nobody remembers that they supported the Iraq war anymore. Uh, nobody remembers that they supported Boris Johnson anymore. Uh, uh, people, you know, people who voted for Brexit now tend to be a bit quiet about that fact, given it's not going um, hugely well. Uh, and actually, Rishi Sunak sort of trapped in that, that he did exactly what the public wanted. And now they're sort of misremembering and thinking, oh, no, it was a bad thing to have done. Well, it's, I suppose it's a reminder of politics. And <laughs> politics. It's a very good point, <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah. You, you just ignore the polls, you know, and you have to govern in a way that you think is sensible for the country in the long term because that's all you're going to be judged by when it comes around to the next election. You know, you know. I don't know, looking at that, um, I mean, I, I sympathise a lot with what Libby's saying there because it, it sounded very much like he was on trial, didn't it? You know, that, that was the sense of, uh, of that opening exchange. Like... So did you know? Did you um, did you, why didn't you hand over your WhatsApp messages? It's kind of accusatory in its tone from the outset. You know, maybe reasonably, um, but it's all he's already on the back foot. I mean, everybody who's going to this inquiry is on the back foot, and they're apologising. And it was sort of I'm reminded of like sort of Boris Johnson. You know, like uh, never apologise, never explain. 
And that's all going out the window now. They're all sort of desperately apologizing for what they did. And I, I wonder whether it's it's in a sense because it was like a war government, a feeling of a war government where everybody rallies behind the government during a period when people are scared. But they didn't, the sense is that they didn't win the war. And so now we're picking over why they didn't win the war. So that, and, and they can't win from this position. They're, they're, they're in a sort of desperate place. And, and, and it's partly to do with the vibe of how everything has gone since, isn't it? The economy, you know, if the economy was flying, if we didn't have, you know, the sense of chaos, maybe none of this would, would matter as much. But it's, it seems to add to that general sense that this government has, has completely lost it. You know, there's, there's nothing that they can do. They could announce a positive policy that everybody in the country agreed with, and everyone would go, oh, well, why didn't you do this five years ago? You're useless. <laughs> Um, uh, it's a good point, that isn't it, Libby? That that is politics, and actually, to some extent, because Rishi Sunak has tried to draw a line under uh, what went before that he, you know, the thirty years of failure. Although he then brought David Cameron back into his government, it, you know, in part of that, he hasn't owned what he did do during his time as Chancellor. He so he sort of he's saddled with the bill. He's promising to bring down debt, which isn't quite happening, to grow the economy, which is a bit flat. Um, but but if it goes back to the old thing, if you're not going to blow your own trumpet, nobody else is going to do it for you. Yeah, I mean, I, I think there's, I mean, there, there was a good piece by, by Matthew at the weekend sort of pointing out all the things which this poor beleaguered prime minister has, has staggered through. And I think the idea now that this sort of, oh, the popularity is down now, everybody. And there are some people in the party who want Boris back, apparently. You know, I mean, that uh, there's probably a few who want Liz Truss back. Um, the whole thing is such a mess. And I think of all the people in the mess, Rishi Sunak has actually done his duty to the country rather better than most. I mean, I think he's making mistakes. I think it's a disaster that he's trapped in this Rwanda nonsense, uh, which he's trapped in by Priti Patel and, and, and Suella. But uh, I, I think he, he shouldn't be regarded as being on some kind of trial. Um, Tom, I suppose the other, the, the, the sort of the big question in terms of when it comes to uh, lessons to be learned for the pandemic is the extent to which uh, delays to lockdowns, particularly the second one in, in uh, November 2020, were as a result of lobbying by him uh, because he was concerned about the, the the economy and the amount of money he'd already spent to prop up the economy. Um, and there was clearly, you know, there was that tension. Those arguments, you know, are still being played out now. Is it right to lock down and the impact you have on the economy and then schools? Or should we have stayed open and then risked more deaths, but the economy would have stayed uh, going? And he, you know, clearly as the Chancellor, he's got, he's, you know, his job is to think about the economy. Yeah, I mean, it does seem to me that this um, this inquiry has got like an institutional bias towards only considering the kind of medical outcomes or the, you know, the cost in terms of how many people uh, got uh, COVID at what times. And if we'd have locked, I mean, this, the essential question seems to be, should we have locked down earlier? I mean, it doesn't seem to be should we have not locked down in certain ways? Should we have kept schools open or universities open or or any of these things? And it's fascinating to me that we haven't really looked into this kind of Swedish case, which seems to be effectively a kind of lockdown, but a, a more of a voluntary lockdown that wasn't uh, so severe. And it, you know, I, I was a supporter of the lockdowns on, on both of them, but it, I do look at it and I, I am questioning it now. Like, did it need to be so severe? 
um, because Sweden has better results than we did. So I, I do want to know why that is. And is there, did we kind of lose our bottle at the start? I remember going to see Chris Whitty, I think right at the very beginning, his first ever public briefing. And he said very clearly, if this uh, pandemic uh, gets out of control in one country, anywhere in the world, then it's out of control in every country in the world. There's nothing you can do about it. It's going to come into your country. And then once it's in your country, everyone's going to get it effectively. And so the question is, how do you spread that out? You know, you can't stop it. And as the wave kind of washed over us, I remember feeling that that had gone, like that that sense yeah. had gone and we were panicking and we were trying to um, stop it from washing over us at all. Um, so I don't know. It feels like the 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 um, the inquiry is slightly um, skewed in one direction. I'm not sure that that is beneficial overall. So I do feel for Rishi in this respect because he was effectively somebody needed to champion the economy and other uh, other considerations. As I think the education secretary should have done a much better job. And remember, he was utterly useless at the time. Gavin Williamson, of course, because we, lest we forget. Um, uh, Tony and Henley's been in touch saying, well done, well said, Libby. Sunat was the one voice of sanity in the cabinet during the lockdown mania of 2020 and 2021. And Hillary says, hurrah for the great British public. Let's put them in charge next time with their multiple crystal balls. Uh, yeah, that's the annoying thing about the public. They are uh, inconsistent uh, in their uh, views. Right, let's turn our attention now away from uh, COVID inquiry and an interesting sort of row bubbling under the surface in Scotland. Uh, David Cameron is threatening to close the Scottish government's overseas offices after Humza Yousaf met President Erdogan of Turkey without any UK officials there. This is obviously because uh, foreign affairs is reserved to Westminster. Uh, so if the First Minister is meeting anyone uh, abroad, then they're supposed to have a foreign office official there. It's not the first time this happened, and the new Foreign Secretary, David Cameron, um, is saying that if it happens again, they'll, uh, they'll, they'll put a stop to meetings altogether. Um, Tom, what have you made of this row? A sort of Westminster muscularity from David Cameron, you know, more than we've seen before, bearing in mind this is the guy who, what, this time 10 years ago, was setting out the path to an independence referendum. <laughs> yeah, and I think making a panicked pledge right at the last minute to try and get it over the line, if I remember rightly, and then backtracking very quickly after the referendum and promising English votes for English uh, English laws, which I think we've had to get rid of since. Yeah, I mean, he he's obviously all over the place on this, but I am sympathetic, actually, to, you know, what is called sort of muscular unionism. And I think it's just because of this, really, that, are, you know, are we a country... Or, or not? Like, are we a nation state that does certain things together and has a government that acts for the whole of the UK in on certain things? Not everything, but on certain things. And I think the question that, you know, answering that question has become difficult because it's very hard to say, well, what is it that we do as an entire UK um, that is accepted across the entire UK? You know, do we um, before Brexit, we devolved uh, even the control of what comes in and out of uh, the borders into the devolved administration. So when we then had to decide what we were going to do um, post-Brexit, it was fiendishly complicated because it turned out that we we thought, well, that, we can't possibly ever imagine leaving the EU. So we'd, we were happy to devolve these things. 
And so I think, you know, if you go back in time, there were once nationalized industries, there was a national health service uh, that covered the whole of the UK. That doesn't exist anymore. It's been devolved into different parts. The army is absolutely tiny. You know, we don't have national energy uh, in infrastructure. It's again, it's devolved. So what is it that's left that's holding us together? And I think that is a um, a question that we need to address if we're going to stick around together uh, in the long term. We need to have things that we all bind uh, together. And foreign policy has surely got to be one of those things. I think there has to be a way of bringing the Scottish government into that. But we also have to act as a uh, as a nation, or otherwise the whole thing just starts to fall apart. I think. Uh, Libby, what did you what do you make of this? And is David Cameron the right the right man for the job? Uh, I don't know. He may be the right man for the job. I don't know. I mean, my my nephew works for Aspen Foundation and has been massively admiring of how mad magically suave he was over there. But I am very encouraged by this idea of a tightening of the idea that the UK does actually exist as an entity, as against sort of soggy nationalist devolution uh, to, um, in this case, an incompetent grandstanding SNP. Uh, I mean, the business about the gender change and you know, the overruling of their absurd idea of instant self-created gender change with no no safeguards at all, such as the rest of the UK have. I mean, that was, uh, uh, that was great. I mean, I, I do think you have to sort of say devolution was laid out, you know, particular things are your responsibility. You're not doing it very well. Education, not doing it very well. Ferries, not doing it very well. You know, so don't just go grandstanding off trying to make your own foreign policy or indeed make your own gender rules. Um, you know, it's it's absurd. And I'm glad that there is now s sort of rising this sense that the UK sticks together. Yeah, it exists indeed. Exactly, it even exists. And yeah, if if the UK government isn't going to make that case, then uh, then then who is? Um, I want to move on to another thing because uh, I thought this was really interesting. I watched uh, Keir Starmer on Alan Titchmarsh at the weekend on ITV's Love Your Weekend. <laughs> Very cosy. Uh, Keir Starmer and Penelope Keith making uh, chit-chat. Uh, Keir Starmer, though, uh, was setting out why, how he thinks Labour become the party of the countryside, telling Alan Titchmarsh he wants b more British food to be grown here. I think we should have a target for 50% homegrown food. Can you achieve that? Is that realistic? I think we can. Firstly, we need to be ambitious about this. We need to work with farmers to make that work. The government can pull levers. There are big procurements for food into the NHS and other places. So there are things that the government can do. But we should take great pride in that. That is, you know, what drives our countryside. And it's very, very precious. Um, Libby, can the Labour Party... In, in, you know, he went on to say he grew up in working-class rural, I think on the Surrey-Kent border, and he, he knows the countryside, and his parents used to keep donkeys and, and all of this. Can Labour uh, really become the... the the, the party of the countryside on top of everything else? Well, the Conservatives have left a mighty vacuum there. Um, pretty much disliked, certainly in my part of the rural countryside. And what have we got? We've had Therese Coffey and Matt Hancock. You know, it's, it's all a bit depressing down here. Um, I think uh, I think they might. Uh, I mean, the Lib Dems always have a much, much better chance, to be honest, because people still have a sort of visceral fear um, of of uh, of labour uh, in in some rural areas, but I, I think they might. And I mean, the points about farming are are good ones. You know, if 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 he can do it, uh, a certain amount of food security is something that should have been thought about long ago. And as I say, the Conservative Party, you know, traditionally sort of squirearchy, has lost 
yeah. a lot of credibility in the countryside. And uh, remember that rural areas have not had a very happy time through COVID. Uh, you know, having sort of problems with transport, problems with with you know poverty, problems with the coastal towns, and so on. So I I think I think he has a better chance than we think. But as I say, the Lib Dems nearly always seem to do that bit better. So we may end up with another coalition. Who and, knows? And actually, yeah, Tom, I suppose the point is the maths, the way the maths works, is that lots of rural areas, if the Lib Dems are in second place, and there's a sort of general get the toys out. Uh, move then they, you know, then they're more likely to pick up those votes but it, it just it's a demonstration i suppose of labor's confidence that, that now the the leader of the labor party can go on alan titchmarsh on a sunday morning um you know not quite wearing his country tweeds but not far off uh and, and talk and talking the way that he was in a way that would have seemed absurd not that long ago yeah i would say first margaret thatcher praising margaret thatcher in the telegraph and then uh going and talking about the countryside with titchmarsh uh, i mean it's it's exactly what the uh, labor party needs to do i think there is also a thread that ties it all together which is this sort of idea it's a terrible name but securonomics and this sense that actually the country isn't secure enough in too many things so it needs some kind of energy security you need some kind of food security medical supplies to go all the way back to the start of this discussion you know that we shouldn't be so dependent on you know dodgy suppliers in china for some of the most basic things that we need in case there's a pandemic so i think there's something that kind of ties it all together there and then it does come back to the nation state and can the uk as a whole provide all this. I mean, it was one of the great arguments for the union during COVID that the Treasury, with its might, could actually deliver things that maybe the Scottish government couldn't because it was just too small. So I think it, it's all there. There's something there that Labour could really um, catch the public mood um, with. Yeah. Uh, but at the same time, she has to be a bit dangerous. I did, I did think of British cheese and Liz Truss as I was <laughs> <laughs> as I was listening to him there. Tom McTague from Unheard and Libby Purvis from The Times. Of course, you can read Libby every week in The Times. Just get yourself a subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next, Rishi Sunak's Nightmare Before Christmas. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. You're listening to the Redbox Podcast now. It's time for this. The Big Thing on Times Radio.
we've got no no but we've got a plan right we've got a plan to pass this legislation and i want to pass it quickly right but i'm not hearing from anyone else that they've got a plan we're not sent to parliament to be concerned about our reputations on the gilded international circuit chris says this is eat out to help the virus and i thought you know i thought that's funny anyone who thinks that what the Conservative Party or the country needs is a change of Prime Minister is either mad or malicious or both. Rishi Sunak's nightmare before Christmas. Uh, we've just heard uh, him defending his Rwanda policy, right? Uh, his former immigration minister, Robert Jenrick, putting the boot in on the BBC yesterday. Who can have you been talking about when he referred to people burnishing their reputation on the international stage? Boris Johnson reminded us that Rishi Sunak played a major role in the government's handling of the COVID pandemic, which he's being grilled about today. And Damien Green insisting there aren't many Tories mad enough to think that another leadership challenge right now is what they need. But just how bad is it for the Prime Minister? What, if anything, can he do to turn things around? At the moment, we've got three wise men. Well, two of them are actually women, but uh, for the purposes of this Christmas metaphor, three wise men, uh, to try and come up with some ideas about how he could turn things around. First, though, Rishi Sunak giving evidence to the COVID inquiry. Let's take a listen to what he's just been saying. I didn't ever describe it as a clash just between public health and economics. I think that's to think about it in far too narrow a way. As many people have alluded to, and I did at the time, there were a range of impacts many of them socioeconomic, the impact on children's education, on mental health, on the issue in the criminal justice system, as well as the pure economic impact. And it was important that policymakers consider the totality of those, and that was a consistent point throughout. But obviously, my particular um, responsibility was the economy and, and fiscal policy. Richard Sunak uh, there. Well, watching along, Times Radio's Callum MacDonald. Uh, Callum... It's striking that, what, just over half an hour in, one of the main tickers on the rolling news channel is Rishi Sunak gives evidence to COVID inquiry. <laughs> OK, I was I was literally just saying to one of our bosses there, this, it sounds like, in terms of tone, delivery and words being used, it sounds like the worst corporate work meeting you've ever been in. And that may change, and I think within that there is still some helpful stuff. I'm only saying that by way of the tone and the delivery and those sorts of meetings that kind of feel like they're dragging on and on and on, and we're only sort of half an hour or 40 minutes in. Now, that is that is me just making a judgment. Others may disagree, and that's fine. I think what you've heard there is potentially the, the sort of most standout moment of the last half hour. I'll mention another couple. Uh, one is that Rishi Sudak began by apologising to those who lost loved ones to COVID and also all those who suffered in various different ways throughout the pandemic as a result of the decisions that were taken. And I think that does set the mood somewhat for what we'll hear through the day, which is this kind of... Uh, representation of Rishi Sunak as Chancellor at the time in terms of what he was trying to convey from an economic and fiscal point of view up against the kind of public health information. Now, he denies there was a clash in those things, as you've just heard, but I think that is the kind of mood setter, if you like, for, for what's kind of uh, bubbling away now. Um, he's been kind of quite complimentary of some of the decision-making processes. He said things like the COVID task force um, ideally would have been there from the start, but, you know, the start was the start. And these things began, sort of came into existence and evolved and changed. He mentions the COVID Operations Committee, often referred to as COVID-O, and the COVID Strategy Committee, referred to as COVID-S. And so he liked that these decision-making processes were eventually brought in. 
And I think the other thing just to mention is WhatsApps. This was where Hugo Keith Casey started this morning, was to question why on earth we didn't have access to WhatsApps. Uh, from Rishi Sunak, from the time of the pandemic, he said, which we were expecting, that he changed his phone multiple times, the messages didn't come across. He did also try to offer some level of reassurance, saying, I'm not a prolific user of WhatsApp. Anything that was of significance through those conversations and exchanges will then have been recorded officially by civil servants. So I think what's interesting there is he's trying to emphasise that he perhaps, in his minimal use of WhatsApp, played by the rules and there were official recordings of the decision-making process. Of course, we don't have all the messages, so we don't know. Callum, thanks for that. Callum McDonald, Times Radio's very own Callum McDonald, watching along so that you don't have to. Uh, very best of luck, Callum. Thank you. Uh, yeah, good luck with that. Right, let's turn then to our not three wise men, our three wise people who could offer some festive cheer to uh, Rishi Sunak, or at least possibly shine a guiding star to help him to a better... I, that's, right. Let's speak to our, the three people who know about these things. Katie Balls of The Spectator's Political Editor. Hi, Katie. Hi. Uh, you are bringing some gold. Uh, to this okay. uh, discussion. Gito Harry was Boris Johnson's Director of Co- uh, Communications at number 10. Uh, Gito, are you bringing common sense? Frank and, Frank and common sense. Fantastic. That's well, good, well, isn't I'll it? I'll settle for that. Uh, Kate Fall, uh, Deputy Chief of Staff to David Cameron when he was in number 10. D- do you know what Murr is? Uh, not sure I do. Right, fine, good. Well, we'll try, uh, we'll try to weather that between us. Um, Katie, uh, just wanted to uh, start really where Callum was just uh, leaving off. Uh, Rishi Sinak has, has been explaining this morning that he was very close to Boris Johnson at the time. I saw the Prime Minister probably more than I saw my own wife uh, during this period of the uh, pandemic. Is it a problem for him that when he's trying to look forwards, he's been dragged basically sort of, what, two, two and a half years back? Well, I think it's been a problem ever since he became prime minister that he is often dragged back. And that's partly because you just uh, have former prime ministers still in the House of Commons. Now, of course, Boris Johnson has has now left the Commons. But I think much of his premiership has been about what his predecessors say. There aren't many examples of, you know, prime ministers who have had that many active predecessors. It's a sign of the Tory dysfunction. And he also doesn't have that much time. So many of the decisions of previous governments, some of which he was clearly involved in as chancellor, I think he is still having to grab with. So I think it's symptomatic of his wider issues in his premiership. So uh, how serious, uh, if you put all the things together, Katie, how serious are things right now for Rishi Sunak? Has everyone lost their minds, basically, by saying it's like Brexit all over again? Or, or is there actually some truth to his, his position being in, in trouble? Well, I think it's like Brexit in the sense that you have different Tory tribes um, debating one another. And also, not only that, some of those Tory tribes see a policy, it's almost policy purity. So the policy that some are arguing for, if you believe Rishi Zinek when he says the Rwandan government won't take it, is one that wouldn't actually work. And if you do believe the Rwandan government is lying, so um, uh, because Rishi Zinek has told them to, it still is quite unclear how you would get the stronger version through the House of Commons given the left of the party. So I think in terms of irreconcilable policy positions, it feels a bit like Brexit. In terms of Rishi Sunak's position and the way Brexit has ended the careers or you know Europe has ended the careers of several prime ministers, I think there's still some way to go. I think probably the most likely bad case scenario for Rishi Sunak right now is his party almost starts to look like a death cult, um, a hot mess, um, which <laughs> fights with one another, potentially even in a worst case scenario has a confidence vote but I think he would win that pretty comfortably and therefore 
no one would quite get what they want, but I think Labour would just have so much ammunition to say this is a Tory party that can't get anything done and only fights one another. Um, Gito, you were there at the, the, the dying days of the Boris Johnson government where, where everything you touch doesn't uh, turn to gold, in fact, quite the opposite. And, you know, this sort of sense of spiralling, you, you, you're unable to ever get back on the front foot again. Are those comparisons fair do you think or are there just some people in Westminster who a bit like uh, Pam in uh, Gavin and Stacey just love the drama just 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 excited constantly that you know it's been ages since we've had a new prime minister so let's whip it all up again I think there's two problems one is the uh, parliamentary conservative party seems to have this insatiable appetite for self-harm and they can't seem to survive without wanting to sort of undermine you know, another leader. And uh, and that's ridiculous. And they don't realise that this, in the end, there's only so much harm you can cause to yourself before it becomes fatal. Um, and, and, and you die and you take everyone else down with you. And the other is slightly more of Rishi Sunak's doing. I do think he needs to be more sure-footed and those around him. For me, that chapter of cancelling meeting with the Greek prime minister, at one level, doesn't matter at all. But at another, it shows a level of immaturity and and, and, and messing up, that is, you know, ju- there's just no room for that at that level. But the problems he has this week, I think he'll get through today okay. I think he'll remind people that actually he did two things very well as a brand new chancellor at the time. He got a furlough scheme up and running. Um, and, and, and then the eat out to hate, uh, to, 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 to help out, uh, was well intentioned uh, to save an industry that's in deep trouble. But what he faces over Rwanda is horrific. And he's raised the stakes there, unfortunately. He was kind of nearly in a corner, but he's put himself firmly in the corner now <laughs> so that if he doesn't get this policy through, the, the, the harm to his reputation is huge. Okay, Kate Fall then. Um, uh, what, what about you? Lots of people have uh, got in touch pointing out that myrrh is a spice used in embalming. Uh, you ought to be able to run with that. So there we are. You are is, it, is, is Rishi Sunak's premiership dead and buried, Kate? Well, look, I think he's obviously in a, in, in a problem. I mean, look, this Rwanda bill, you know, the whole policy, Rwanda policy always seems to be more like a narrative. Um, you know, images of boats coming in, images of people going out on the plane, strong image, but the policy always seemed to me to be pretty weak. And I don't understand why he's spending so much time talking about an issue where he's losing trust on it. The rule of politics is talk about the issues that you can you can resolve. So I think he needs to diversify. He needs to take the fight to Labour. He needs to talk about things that make them uncomfortable, e.g. they don't have many policies. Um, but look, Max, I was thinking the other day about, you know, times when I was in number 10 when things were difficult. And of course, we had a run of terrible luck after, you know, the, the, the um, budget in, in 2012, the shambles, and on and on it went. And we could never really quite relaunch every time we relaunch something else happened that went wrong so it is very hard to regain the momentum in politics once you've lost it and actually it took us almost a year until the economy was doing better to to get things going again times radio with matt chorley Hey, good morning to you. It's Matt Cholley on times radio taking a look at rishi sunak's nightmare before christmas but it's okay. We are going to sort out his problems because we've got three wise persons who uh, are going to offer up some top advice on what to do when you're when you're in trouble. Uh, Kate Ford was Deputy Chief of Staff to David Cameron when he was in number 10. Geeta Harry was Boris Johnson's Director of Communications at number 10 towards the end of his premiership. And Katie Balls, the Spectator's political editor, has seen 
many, many prime ministers come and go. Right, let's let's focus then on his options, Rishi Sunak. Let's let's first of all look at actually what some people thought he was going to do last week when he called that that press conference. Should he do a John Major? Should he do a put up or shut up? Every leader is leader only with the support of his party. That is true of me as well. That is why I'm no longer prepared to tolerate the present situation. In short, it is time to put up or shut up. Or should he follow the example of, say, Ted Heath or Theresa May? It was with reluctance that I decided the country needs this election. But it is with strong conviction that I say it is necessary to secure the strong and stable leadership the country needs. Gito, let's start with you. What should he do? Put up or shut up? Challenges, challenges MPs? Call an election? Something else? Um, I hesitate to echo him, but at one stage, you know, when I was in number 10, I saw more of uh, Rishi Sunak than I did of, of, of my wife. We sat down every morning around uh, the table in Margaret Thatcher's old uh, study at about 8.15 and went through the events of the day. I've seen him up close and personal. I've seen him with Boris Johnson. I saw how well they got on at that point. Obviously, things soured a little later on. And what I'm getting at is this is a you know, clean living, hardworking, super intelligent guy who understands global finance and economics better than most people on the planet. And so what do you do? You play to people's strengths. So you don't try and build him up to be some macho man who's going to turn around little boats. You say, if the biggest issues facing modern Britain is how to sort of overcome major economic challenges and indeed take advantage of major economic opportunities, not least in AI, where a guy educated in the West Coast of America is better placed than most for that. Play to those strengths. But the idea that Rishi Sunak is the guy who blows out the sort of uh, Greek prime minister and then stands up and says, put up or shut up, and I'm going to send people to Rwanda, and you just watch how hard I am. It's ludicrous. It's not credible. And actually, for a lot of us, it's not attractive, even if it was credible. So there is an opportunity to get back to what Rishi Sunak is there for. Why God made Rishi, if you put it that way, is to be a sort of calm, reassuring hard-working, thoughtful um, leader of, of a country that is trying to overcome really difficult times. Please to those strengths and there could be advantages for him as well as the rest of us. Uh, Kate Fall, you talked about um, when when David Cameron's premiership got into periods of trouble. What do you think he'll be... What advice do you think David Cameron might be giving Rishi Sunak right now? Well, I think I, I'm sure that he is a reassuring person for Rishi in his cabinet and, and also sort of dealing with lots of the very difficult issues that we're facing globally. Um, but, but I think, you know, Rishi's got to start talking about things that he's trusted on, not just spending his whole time on the one issue that he seems not to be. He needs to talk about long-term, meeting long-term plans and the fact that Labour don't have many policies or don't like to talk about their policies as well. And then, of course, the big issue for Rishi, the big decision is when he holds the election next year. And, of course, that, that's the question he's got to face. You know, does he sort of wait it out and hope the polls are going to prove the economy is going to prove and the party is going to be liking each other more? Or does he take the view that none of those things are going to be aligned and he's better sort of gathering the forces together and going in, in, in May? And I think that's, that's the million-dollar question.
well, in terms of when you might call a general election. I suppose that's the thing, isn't it? There's all this talk about yeah. th- about his options and, you know, is Boris Johnson going to come back? Is Nigel Farage going to become a candidate as well? You know, the, some of the powers that any prime minister has is who is a candidate is one, but also when that election is and that that can, you can use that as a, as a power over your MPs. Exactly. And the fact is, is that at the moment, the MPs are panicking because they're worried about losing their seat. So the one thing that Rishi holds is, is the power at the moment to decide when that election is. I don't think there's going to be another leadership election. I think this is all talk about the post-election leadership election. And that's why he needs to try and unite the, the party and MPs and focus on the next election, not on infighting. Uh, Katie, what advice do you think uh, Rishi Sunak should be taking then about what he should do, you know, today, this week, this month, next year? So I think the problem on boats is he's ultimately gone for give both sides a bit, though I would say the right are getting more than the One Nation side when it comes to this bill. But the right are harder to satisfy than taking a more purist approach. Um, So what Rishi Sunak could say is if this doesn't work, I'll put leaving the ECHR and the Tory manifesto. That might help with some of them. But some would say, why don't we do it now? And also the left of the party would say, this is, we don't want this. Um, <laughs> therefore, I think in a way, the best thing Rishi Sunak has going for him is not just that he can pick when the election is, is that a majority of MPs don't want to change leader, even if they don't particularly rate Rishi Sunak. And I think the closer you get to an election, perhaps to be able to crystallise that idea in their minds, which is, do you think in terms of your electorate, it's better to have ongoing talk and fighting or getting to a point where uh, you know months to go it could be as soon as may focus your minds now that might be wishful thinking in terms of where the party is but i think that's where a majority of tory MPs still are so using them to calm down their other colleagues might be the best way forward in fact you talked about that i saw at the weekend uh guy called alex dean who used to work used to work for the toys uh some time ago he says if the pm loses the rwanda vote we should go to the country. Snap election. This is an immigration election, a one-issue vote. Do you back us in trying to control immigration or not? And I sort of pointed out to him that if you look at the polling from uh, YouGov in terms of the best party, the Tories are currently behind Labour, don't know, and none uh, when it comes to the best party on asylum and immigration. So I, I wasn't sure how smart an idea uh, that would be either. The, 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 even, you know, they're playing this card. They think it's a big card for them to play, but they're behind Labour on this as well, Casey. Yeah, and I think the other problem is it only works if you have a united Tory party, you have the same solution on stopping the boats. And that election would be different Tories saying different things. Um, Even if you went for ECHR, they'd be leaving it. There'd be Tories on the left saying, we don't support that. So I think that's the tricky thing about this stop the boats election. So I'm conscious, Kate, uh, let let you come in there, because I'm I'm suddenly conscious having two people with almost identical names (laughs) makes it quite problematic. Kate, for Exactly. Well, I agree with Katie. I mean, the problem is they don't actually have a solution for for this problem. So going to, going to the electorate, making that the centre point of their election is, is a very, very high risk, especially if the party's divided. And on the ECHR, again, back to Katie's point, um, it, just, it just sort of exacerbates splits because one group of the party think that their international standing and, and human rights at the time were, were sort of fighting Russia uh, up against China is exactly the wrong thing to do. And the other half think it is the thing to do. So it's just more Tory splits going into an election. Uh, finally, uh, Katie Balls. Well, Kate Fall might have a view on this. I realise Katie Balls and Kate Fall is quite similar. Um, uh, Katie Balls, <laughs> Nigel Farage uh, comes third in the uh, I'm a Celebrity Jungle. We've got some Tory MPs wanting him to come in as a candidate. He says he's not going to join uh, the Tories. 
Is that we? How high up the list, the long, long list of things that the the, uh, the Rishi Sunak needs to be worried about? How how high up the list is Nigel Farage? I think it's fairly high. I don't think it's top. But if you go from reform being on 10 points to about 15 points, um, you know, if you think where the Tories are, you'll start to see a lot more panic. I think that defections to the reform party are fairly unlikely because MPs will think they'll lose their seats. Um, unless they think, you know, I might as well have one great last stand to make a point. Um, but it will just further exacerbate those right-left tensions within the party and potentially reduce this Tory, you know, if the numbers stay where they are, reduce this, uh, you know, Tory result to something pretty disastrous if they can't curb the threat. And we wait and see how Rishi Sunak's week pans out. Make sure you subscribe to the Redbox podcast so you don't miss any future episodes. But for now, from me, Matt Jolly, it's goodbye. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk.